I think it's only right that before we take a look at this Easter story once more, that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that this morning we come to once more behold your empty tomb and know that we have hope. And so as we look again at that first Easter Sunday, we ask, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand and open hearts to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Why do we keep saying that? No, I mean, we, we, we do this every year, right? We come back here, we, we say, Hallelujah, Christ is risen. We respond, He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. We, we go back, we read the exact same story, the Easter story from Scripture. Every year, we're back here at this place, this time. And I, and I know that many of us, we look forward to Easter, right? We look forward to the flowers and the music and the light and the joy. But I want you to understand for a second what an existential crisis this causes for us as pastors. Because of the fact that we come back, we do the exact same story, the exact same passages, but now we have to preach something new out of it. And this is really quite stressful, okay? I, earlier this week, I was going for a walk with my wife, and she asked me, she said, so is your, is your Easter message ready? And I, I was like, I honestly have no idea what I'm going to say, because it's the same story. Like, what more is there to say? Why, why do we keep coming back here and rereading this story? But honestly, that, that walk was really helpful because I really started thinking about that. Why do we do this every year? Why do, we, why do we come back and look at this same story again? And I think the answer is because we believe as Christians that in the Easter story, we find answers to some of life's deepest questions. Some of those questions that especially when it matters most, times of trial and difficulty, we find answers and hope here. Particularly when we encounter those most difficult questions, like what happens when we die? Is there life beyond death? How do we know and what difference does it make? You see, these are questions that every human being wrestles with in, in, some, in small ways and in big ways. It's a question that is at the center of the Easter story. And after all, when they come to the tomb that morning, they find it empty. And these questions are suddenly front and center. At the very heart of our story is a funeral that ends in a very unexpected way. The fact that the grave clothes remain, but Christ is gone you see, these questions about what happens after we die are things that humans have wrestled with down through the ages. Many of us are familiar with that great soliloquy in Shakespeare's Hamlet, where Hamlet, wrestling with this question of what happens after we die, asks that question, to be or not to be. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this, immortal, uh, this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. 
Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience makes cowards of us all. You see, there Hamlet is wrestling with what happens after we die. Is it something that we should look forward to or something that we should fear? Should we, knowing what comes, suffer the things that we must endure or simply give up? These are the questions that people wrestle with in life's most difficult circumstances. In fact, uh, it was many years ago I had uh, the privilege of reading a book by the French philosopher Luc Ferry. And in his book, A Brief History of Thought, what he does is he traces the development of Western philosophy. And one of the things that he says is he says, every single philosophy that's worth its weight is a philosophy that deals with this most fundamental question. What happens when our end comes? And the reason why he says this question is so important is because he, he, he thinks about what we truly desire. He says, what do we truly desire above all else? to be understood, to be loved, not to be alone, not to be separated from our loved ones. In short, not to die and not to have them die on us. He says philosophy is training for life, but only because it helps us wrestle with death. It helps us wrestle with our end. And he says this is important not just for that ultimate question of what happens when we do finally pass on, but for all the ways in which we encounter little deaths, little ends throughout our life. Those moments when we find ourselves alone. Those moments when a relationship that we love suddenly ends unexpectedly. Those moments when our dreams are shattered. See, Ferry says that these are all little deaths, little ends that we must wrestle with. And so every good philosophy must have an answer to this question. What happens when we die? What hope do we have? How will that carry us through life's storms? And it's a question that I often hear at people's bedsides. That when I'm visiting someone in the hospital, or visiting someone in hospice, or when I'm comforting a family who's just lost a loved one, this question always comes to the fore. Will we see each other again? Is there hope? What happens after we die? And, and most importantly, Pastor, how do you know? How do you know that there's hope? How do you know that there's life after death? And so this morning, that's the reason we gather here is because we believe in the Easter story, there are indeed answers to this most important question. Because it's a question that's plagued us down through the ages. It's a question that even the people of Scripture have had to wrestle with. We read this amazing passage from the book of Job earlier in our service where Job, a man who's encountering suffering, a man who's wrestling with loss, finally speaks these words. He says that I know my Redeemer lives, that in the end he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. That's the cry of every human heart when we encounter our end. And the beauty of the Easter story is that there is an answer. 
Because on that first Easter Sunday, when the disciples went to the tomb, when the women went there to once more add spices and perfumes to the dead body of the master they loved, they came and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance to the tomb. And looking in, his body was no longer there. But more than this, upon turning around, what did they find but that Christ himself is risen? He is risen indeed. Alleluia. See, the beauty of the Easter story is it tells us that death is not the end. That in fact, what is proclaimed by Jesus rising again is that death itself has now died. It's an incredible message of hope for those who find themselves in life's darkest chapters. Because what Jesus is saying is he's saying your sufferings, your pain, your ultimate end is not an end any longer. That there is such a thing as life eternal. That that is a life that I have come to give you and you can know because of the fact that he is risen. He is risen indeed. That's why we gather here. That's why we tell this story is because we need that reminder. We need that reminder because of the fact that life is difficult. That our journeys often lead us into dark valleys and troubled waters. And yet what Jesus says is those things will not overwhelm you. For I have come to give you life and life abundantly. In fact, going back to that book I mentioned earlier by Luke Ferry, this is what he actually concludes. After looking at the whole of Western philosophy, all the various answers to death, he says the Christian response to mortality, for believers at least, is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. And then he concludes his book with these words, I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. Nothing can compete with this story. He looks at all of the great philosophies that have come down to us through the ages and he says, there is none better than the Christian message of Christ is risen. He is risen indeed to help people navigate the trials of life. This is the best one available. Now what I find so amazing about that is that Luke Ferry is not a Christian. He actually would call himself a secular humanist. And in fact, at one point I had to wrestle with reading this in his book. You know, how can he on the one hand say this and then yet not believe? And you actually have to read his book very, very carefully because he only gives you an answer one time and it's almost a throwaway line. This is what he says. He says, first and foremost, because the promise of religions that we are immortal and will encounter our loved ones after our own biological demise is too good to be true. Now, this is a man who has a PhD in philosophy, and yet I have never read a more anti-intellectual statement than that one. Because it's too good to be true, on what logical grounds? But at the same time, I need to slow down for a second and, and recognize that I can kind of understand where he's coming from. As someone who at one time was a skeptic, I can kind of get where Faree gets this idea, why this is his default posture. Because for me, as, as someone who was skeptical, who didn't always believe, I thought that the story of the resurrection was just that. It was just a story. 
I mean, after all, there are countless religions that talk about life after death. You can look at, at many different uh, religions, whether Western religions or Eastern religions, and find some sort of promise of an afterlife. So what makes this any different? That's kind of what Faria is saying. He's saying, you know, they've got all these options, and what they just sound like is somebody simply making a wish. That coming to some of the greatest challenge that we will all face, our, our death, our ultimate demise... Isn't this just wishful thinking? Because it sounds too good to be true. Well, it is only wishful thinking if it wasn't based on a historical event. You see, what I find so amazing about the Christian story is that of all those religions that promise life after death, only Christianity hinges that belief on something that actually took place in human history. That all of them, while they might say we hope there's an afterlife, only Christianity says we know there's one because in time and in space, a dead man came back to life. That it was under the reign of Pontius Pilate during the height of the Roman Empire in Judea that a man from Nazareth was crucified, buried in the ground, and three days later bodily rose again. And in fact, if you read through the entire New Testament, that's what every single early Christian hinged their entire faith on. I loved what the Apostle John actually says in his first letter. He says, what we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched with our hands, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Likewise, if you go to the Apostle Paul, what he says is he says, if Christ has not been risen from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. See, what I love about the Bible is the fact that it is not afraid of questions and that in many ways it challenges us. Because what these early Christians are saying is they're saying, we know there's life after death because Jesus rose again. And if you don't believe us, look at the evidence. If you don't believe us, study it for yourself. Because we have eyewitness account after eyewitness account. We have verified historical evidence that points us to the reality that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In fact, it's the only thing that really makes sense of the Christian story. Because the idea of the, the Savior of the world would come and die really isn't very compelling unless he rose again. In fact, it led the former uh, professor of New Testament studies at Oxford University, N.T. Wright, to say this. He says, the historian has to say, how do we explain the fact that this movement spread like wildfire with Jesus as the Messiah, even though Jesus had been crucified? The answer has to be, it can only be because he was raised from the dead. Professor of New Testament studies at Oxford University and countless others who have looked at the evidence for themselves and come to the conclusion, we can believe there's life after death because Christ is risen. We've seen it. Others have seen it. There's evidence for it, and it is on this that we stake every other claim that we make. And if you are sitting here this morning, 
and you have not yet explored the evidence, I want to invite you to do so. Because honestly, I could go on and on about this. And I'm sure some of you want to get to Easter brunch eventually. But the reality is the reason we say this is not simply because we have blind faith. We have faith, yes, but faith that's grounded on good evidence. And the invitation that I want to make to you this morning is that if you've never explored this evidence for for yourself, we are giving you an opportunity to do just that. In two weeks, starting the first Thursday in May, we are hosting something called Christianity Explored in which you can come and you can look at the evidence for yourself. You can hear the eyewitnesses for yourself. You can bring all the questions you have and study it together with us because of the fact that we are so convinced of this that uh, we are willing to die for it. We are so convinced of this that it animates everything else that we do. Because what's beautiful about this is not only that it's true, but that it reshapes everything else about how we live and approach our world. I love how the author Josh McDowell puts it. He says, few people seem to realize that the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of a worldview that provides the perspective to all of life. Because when you realize that death is now dead, that Christ is risen, It not only gives you courage and hope in the face of death, but it actually gives you courage and hope every single day of your life. It's part of the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote these words in Philippians 3.10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What does he mean when he says that? He says, I want to have that resurrection power every single day of my life so that no matter what I face, No matter what challenges may come my way, no matter what heartbreaks I'm wrestling with, I can know that these things, although difficult and hard, are not the final word. That I can face them with courage and peace and hope. In fact, he later on writes in 2 Corinthians these words. He says, this is why we don't lose heart. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I don't know what season of life you find yourself in. I don't know what dark valleys you're walking through, what stormy seas you find yourself upon, but this resurrection power, this good news that Christ is risen is for you. Because no matter where life has taken you, you can have confidence in knowing that Jesus is there. That just as he has overcome death itself, so he is mighty enough, strong enough, powerful enough, loving enough, and faithful enough to see you through whatever it is you're facing. It's part of the reason why the Apostle Paul was also able to write this. He says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why can he say that? Because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. He is more powerful than anything you will ever face doesn't mean that life will always be easy, but we can face it with a life built upon the firm foundation of his resurrection. 
of his empty tomb. That when Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, we can pin everything on that promise. And if you do find yourself in the midst of stormy seas, we want to invite you to continue to journey with us as we, over the next several weeks, are going to keep looking at this resurrection power. We're going to be doing so by actually preaching through the book of Job over the next several weeks. Job, this incredible work of Western literature, this incredible story at the heart of the Old Testament, a story of a man who faced suffering and death and yet did so with an immense amount of wisdom and peace who ultimately indeed saw his Redeemer and found hope. And so if you are struggling with that, join us. Join us as we look at that together to see how resurrection life actually brings meaning and peace and purpose to everything that we face. Because this is indeed the promise of Easter. That that hope wasn't just for some people way back when. This hope was for us today. It's a hope that God has given us through Christ. For Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.